Well, we have been walking through the book of Genesis. I think this is like our fifth week or sixth week in it or something of that nature. And uh, we are descending upon chapter two now. And um, what we've covered up until this point has just been creation of, 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 of the world. And so what you see in Genesis chapter one is really what we see. We got, we got, we got nothing. And then when Genesis chapter one ends, we have everything, really. We've got all of the worlds created, the heavens have been created, the earth has been created, the, the seas have been separated out, the land has been separated out, all of them have been populated, and then God makes man, male and female, in his own image. Now it's kind of interesting, uh, he kind of just says, and, and let's make something in our likeness, make something in the likeness, and then just keeps on going. And what we're going to see in actually chapter 2 is we're going to see God open that up. You want to know what it looks like when I made man in my own image? He's going to open that up for us. And this is what we've been talking about. This is what God has been doing in Genesis chapter 1. He talks about something, but then he's about forming it, but then he's narrowing it. And so he's, he's saying, well, I created the heavens. There was nothing. And then I created the heavens and the earth. You go, oh, I want to know about, more about the creation of the heavens. You don't get that. I'll tell you about the earth. And the earth separated out the waters for the waters above the waters below want to know more about that well, don't get a lot about that oh and by the way i created the then the, the land came out oh i want to know more about the creation of the land we don't get a lot about that and then he populates the land with animals i want to know more about how do, how do the animals come to be we don't get a lot about that and i think then god gets to what he's been wanting to get to in the end and Moses, who's the one who's recording this, I believe, gets there fairly quickly in one chapter, right? And says, what we want to talk about is humanity. And really, this is going to be a story. Remember, we said this is going to be a story. This is God's story. The first person that talks about in the beginning is God, so we know he's the main character of this story. But then we're introduced, humanity, and really, this is going to be a story about God and humanity. And so it's interesting that well, he's, he's narrowing in. He's narrowing in. So this, there, there was nothing I created. I created. And what we see is God says he's, he separates out. He forms. And then he fills. Forms the heavens. Fills the heavens. Forms the earth. Fills the earth. Forms the, the seas. Fills the seas. Forms the land. Fills the land. Forms the sky. Fills the sky. This is what he does. He forms and then he fills. And then what we saw last week, most importantly, I think, is that, is that humanity was created in the image of God. Separated out from the rest of creation. And I think if you can understand that and really sort of grab a hold of this idea that we were created in the likeness of God, it gives so much understanding to the things that we wrestle with. As we talked about last week. This idea that the reason why we have image issues is because we are the only creation that's created to be something that we're not, and we know it, and we know it every day of our life. We know it every time we look in the mirror. We know that we should be something better. We should be something other than what we are, and that plagues us. And I go, and, and largely it's, it's because we have, we've been created in the likeness of God. We've created to be like him, not to be him, right? That's a big difference. That's, a, that's a, probably other religions, that we don't have to be God, but that we were created in the likeness of God. 
And a lot of times what we do is we compare ourselves about how well we're doing to other people, right? other humanity. We go, I'm doing better than that person. I'm doing a lot better than that person. But I'm not doing as good as that person. And if all we ever do is compare ourselves to other people, we will go back and forth between these two sort of extremes, which is the extreme of uh, pride. I'm doing a lot better than them. It could be worse. I could be them. They're making horrible decisions. Pride and despair. I'm not doing so well. I wish I could. I, uh, well, I'm not doing as well as them. How do they do it? I wish I was more like them. And so we bounce back and forth. And really what, what the scriptures tell us is if you want to compare yourself to somebody, you compare yourself to Jesus, which you will fall dramatically short of, but not left in despair. Because Jesus says, I have come for you and you get to be like me. And so even Jesus takes us from that despair, not to the place of pride, but to the place of hope. And so this is what we see in uh, Genesis chapter 1. And then uh, two weeks ago, John preached on, on, on the Sabbath. And so what we've seen is day six, six days of creation, one day of rest. And, and, and John was, did a great job to say God didn't rest because he was tired. Like he got to day six and was like, man, I need, I need a day off. Because creation took nothing out of him. Like he was no less powerful, no less, had no less energy or, or endurance than when he started. And so what, what God is doing with, with, with the Sabbath is he's setting up a pattern for us, a gift for us. And it's interesting because many people think like to take a day off is a, is a burden. And I, what John had said, to, but to, take, to not take a day off is to miss the grace of God. Because we think if we stop, the world stops. If I don't do that, the world will fall apart. Which is actually a false statement, right? Because who do we, we just hear a couple weeks ago about who holds the whole world together? Jesus holds the whole world together. And you're not him. And so you get to take a day off. And it's a gift from God. And so all of that's happened. Six days of creation. God has rested. And then we're going to find what's going to happen now is, is, is Moses, as he records this, is going to back it back up. To, so now let's, let's talk more, let's zoom more in into the creation of humanity. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And mist was going up from the, from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature you actually see this pattern here multiple times in genesis which tells us there's a new a new section is one section is coming to a close and a new one is forming i think there's seven of them in genesis where it says these are the generations these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you catch that? And the day that the Lord God made 
made the heavens, made the earth, and made the heavens. There's this interesting shift that happens here. Because what have we heard up until this point? God. God created. God spoke. God created. It was so. God said it was good. God formed. God filled. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4. And what does he say? The Lord God. Now, often we just think that the Lord God is a, is a more formal version to address God with. Like, he's the Lord God. He's the Lord God. And God's like, yeah, you can just call me God. Like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, just call me, like, we're, we're friends. Call me God. You can call me Lord. But that the, the Lord God is a more formal proclamation of his identity. But it's interesting that Moses, as he's recording this, he goes, I, I think very intentionally goes from God in Genesis chapter 1 to then the Lord God in Genesis chapter 2. Now to understand this is we have to understand that the, the word God that is used here and has been used in Genesis chapter 1 is the word Elohim. Elohim is the plural of the world. I'm probably going to give you more than you care to know about. But, but uh, Elohim is the plural of the word El. And El is just means God in Hebrew. It could mean uh, the God that we worship. Uh, it could be uh, the uh, God of other religions. And so sometimes when it's referring to other gods, it would even use the word El. When the plural is then Elohim. And so if there's multiple gods, they'd be like gods, Elohim. Here the, the, the plural is used for God himself as we would think to uh, identify him as the Trinity. And so whenever you see this, whenever you actually you see like names, whenever you see the names El, is that often it's referring to God. So the word, uh, the, the name Daniel, El, Daniel, that Daniel, it means that uh, the El is then God is my judge. Or Ezekiel, the word strong in Hebrew is Hazak. And so Hazakiel is the, the, the God, uh, God is strong. And so you can do this. Um, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, Hebrew is Natan, is gift. And so uh, Natan El is a gift of God. And so you see this. So you see, but, but it's really so more of a generic word for God. We see this. So Elohim, God. But the Lord is different. The Lord is the, what we would understand is the, where we get the word Yahweh. And where we get the word Yahweh from, the name Yahweh, is that when, when Moses, who's recording this, when he's talking to the burning bush, and God is speaking to him through the burning bush, and the burning bush says to, to Moses, I want you to go down, and I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring my Israelites out of slavery. Moses' great question is, who should I send sent me? On whose authority do I go? The people are going to say, well, who, who sent you? What do I tell them? Burning bush. <laughs> he says, I want you to tell them, he says, that I am, I am. And then tell them that the, the Yahweh has sent you. And so there we're revealed in Exodus. The personal name will be the personal covenant name of God. And Moses, who's recording this, he goes, God, 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 God. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, he goes, oh, by the way, the Lord God. Sure, God creates. And here's the crazy thing. God could have just created and stepped back and watched his creation unwind. And some people believe that that, that is what God has done. He's the clockmaker God. He, he built it. He wound the whole thing up. He has removed himself, and now he's just watching it unwind. 
But that's not what Christians believe. We believe in a personal God who is interacting with his creation, not only in Genesis 1, not only in Genesis 2, but throughout and even today. And so what, what Moses does here is he combines the, the, the two together. The Lord God. He is the creator God. But he is also the personal covenant God. And I think it's very intentional of Moses when he does this, that he does this right before he goes to talk about, to explain more about the creation of man. He is just the God. He is just God to the rest of creation. But to his covenant personal people, he is Yahweh. And so the Lord God has created He didn't just step back, but he's invested in interacting in a personal way with his creation. And so he says, this is the Lord God. And notice how then he starts using the Lord God throughout, right? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, for there was no uh, man to work the ground. And what we see here is then there was a mist was going up, or some of your translations may say a spring was coming up and was watering the, the face of the ground. So the from what we would understand is that at this point at least, the, the rain wasn't happening. That the, the world, or at least this place, was being watered by, by springs that were, were coming up. The land was in some level watering itself. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, and the man became a living creature dust and the breath of life the dust from the ground the breath of life from god and then the man became a living creature it's interesting that he didn't become a living creature and we'll actually what we, we find later on is that god formed other other animals out of the ground that's what it, said, it tells us later on is that he formed other animals out of the ground but man did not become a living creature until he was formed by God out of the ground and then breathed in through the nostrils the breath of life and so there is something that's happening here it's interesting because we all kind of get the fact that we are we are from dust right dust to dust that's what we're told dust to dust if you ever go to a, a a memorial service or a funeral, they'll say, you know, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And if you think about it long enough, if we live and die and we're in the ground long enough, we too will return to dust. It's sort of a morbid thought, isn't it? But it's a very real thought. Uh, about 14 years ago, my grandma had passed away and we were at the... Um, we we did the memorial service and then we went to the graveside, and um, you know it's kind of as, as as it typically is at, at, at gravesides it's sort of somber, and uh, and everybody put their 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 flowers on the casket and then they they just lowered the casket down. It was kind of quiet. And my nephew, who's four at the time, he just goes loud enough for everybody to hear. Well, there goes grandma. And we're like, <laughs> we all kind of laugh. We go, yeah, it was just sort of matter of fact. Well, there she goes. She goes into the ground. Like, and that's because we all kind of, we get that we are dust to dust. And to dust we will return. This four-year-old who is on, on the brink of life, 
And so we, we get that. But the weird thing is we're not satisfied with that. Like we understand that nobody would argue that, but we're not satisfied with that. And so we go dust to dust. From dirt we come, from dirt we will go. But then what God does, and I love what we see here, he does the same thing he's been doing the whole time. He forms and then he fills. It's what he did with the earth. It's what he did with the skies. It's what he did with the seas. It's what he did with the land. And now he forms and then he fills. He forms and then he fills. And now we see him forming humanity and then filling humanity with the breath of life. The breath of God. We are only alive because God has given us breath. And when that breath is gone, so are we. And we kind of, we understand this too. You'll hear people say like, well, I'm still here. And as long as God has given me breath, I'm here. And so we actually, we understand this. Like there is something dust about us, but there is something like breath of God about us too. There's something about us that, that knows that we are natural, part of the natural world. But there's something, other things about us that we understand that it's more than just that. That there's something about us that is supernatural. That we are a part of creation, but there's something about us that's physical, and there's something about us that's spiritual. And what I love about Genesis 2 is that Genesis 2 and 1 and 2 nails this, right? It gets this. Thousands of years before this moment, it says, yes, I understand that you, you are physical and you are a spiritual being. And why? Why is that? Because you've been created in the likeness of God and you have been formed out of the dust, a physical thing, but you have been given the breath of God, which is a very spiritual thing. And more than just that, we're created by the relational God. The relational creator God is the one who forms us and fills us. And so not only are we physical and not only are we spiritual, but we're deeply and desperately relational beings. And Genesis 2 says, yes. Why? Because you have been created in the likeness of God. We're physical because we've been created and formed from the dirt. We're spiritual because we have the breath of God in us. And we are relational because we have been created in the likeness of the relational God. And next week we're going to talk about this idea that it's not good for a man to be alone. Right? And what's amazing is that, so remember I said, I think Moses is recording this. And Moses was recording this and reading this and telling these stories to who? To the Israelites who have come out of slavery, out of Egypt. Now, the interesting thing about Egypt, if you read about the pharaohs, you know what the pharaohs believed about themselves? That they were gods. And the people thought they're gods. And the stories about them was that they are gods. And what Moses comes along and says, but well, we... You know, because it's like, well, they're gods, but none of you, which, by the way, means that nobody else is. You guys are slaves. And Moses comes along and says, we all have the breath of God. We all have been created in the likeness of God. And we have all been given the breath of God. It's this interesting thing where now we would believe sort of uh, universally as a culture, we would say, yes, all of humanity has value. All of, all of humans have been created equal. And we go, yes, that is, a, that is just a standard basic statement. I go, yes, but a standard basic statement that is relatively new to the world. 
The world hasn't thought that for a long time, but God has. And Moses comes along and says, yes, we have all been given the breath of God. We have all been created from the dust, but given the breath, and there's this physical, this spiritual, and this deeply relational thing about us. It goes on in 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who had formed, that he had formed, and out of the ground the, God, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we see God, I think like four and seven, we see God as the, the potter. He's forming. And then eight and nine, we see God as the planter. He creates the garden and then he puts man in it. I love that. Crafted the trees. We can see some water. And then he puts man in it. Made me think about when maybe you were expecting your first child. And you got the nursery ready. In theory, right? Painted the walls. Got the furniture. Clothes were in the closet already for a child yet to be born. And you're just waiting for what? To put that little baby in that crib. Everything formed, everything planted, everything created for what? For this new life that is going to take residency here. And I think that's what God is doing with Eden. It's interesting, the thing with Eden, right, is that we, we are all chasing it. We all want to go back to it. Even people that, that aren't, you know, uh, maybe even Christian or, or of faith would say, but we want the world to be an Eden-like place where there's peace, where there's love, wholeness, relationship with God, and things, things are well. You go, good, because there's something, once again, inside of us that longs for the very thing that we've lost. And so he prepares it. And what's interesting thing is that when Jesus goes to be betrayed, the night that he's to be betrayed, he says, I have to leave you. But he says, don't be troubled, I gotta go. But do you remember where he says he's, he's gonna go? He says, I'm going to go, and what? I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. I think about Eden when, when I hear Jesus say that. I'm going to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms in my father's house, and if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. In other words, I'm not lying to you. If that wasn't the truth, I wouldn't actually say that. But actually, I have to go. You're going to come at one place. At one time, you're going to come. But right now, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. There's many rooms in my father's house. I think about God in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as he's creating Eden and preparing a place for Adam and for Eve. In the midst of this garden, there's two trees placed. One's the tree of life. The other the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's almost like that's going to play an important part here in a second. <laughs> the foreshadowing. Genesis chapter 10, to, sorry, chapter 2, verse 10. The river flowed out of Eden to, the, uh, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is the Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land was good, and Bedalium and the onyx stone are there. 
And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is uh, the Euphrates. And so here we see um, these, these four rivers. And these rivers, by the way, we're not going to get to them today, but these rivers are going to come back into play. Interesting, of the, of the four rivers, there's two that we know of today, which is the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, which would place actually probably Eden. I think Eden is a physical, literal location, um, which seems to be what Moses seems to be thinking. He's, he's talking about, he's giving you locations and specific locations about rivers and where they're coming together. And so we know where the Euphrates and, and the Tigris lie, and that would probably be somewhere in modern-day Iraq, which is interesting because you wouldn't necessarily think of Iraq as a, a luxurious, luscious place of a garden. Interestingly enough, we think of it as desolate at times and a desert. And yet we see that the two rivers that, that they know of, and it's interesting because probably most likely they knew of those rivers as well because um, he doesn't seem to be explaining the, uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris very much. He goes, oh, and, and the Euphrates and the Tigris. Almost like, yeah, you know those two. But they, but they didn't know the, the Pishon or the Gihon River. And so those are, those are gone. But what we see here is a lot of water. There's an abundance of materials and resources as well as food. Why would you have to, have to go anywhere? There's resources, there's water, there is food. Traditionally in, in, in world history, when you run out of water, you run out of resources, you run out of food, you have to go out to other lands and conquer them to get said things. I think part of this is that these things are here. They're in abundance. You have to go nowhere. It's a beautiful place. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So let me read that again. For the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. By the way, this is the second time in in a few verses we're told God took the man and he's the one who put him in the garden. To put him in the garden, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God puts the man, it's very clear, he puts the man in the garden. And he goes, I want you to work it and I want you to keep it. And John did a good job of this on the Sabbath. When he's talking about the Sabbath is that we, we see work. You know, the fall, we, we refer, when we talk about the fall, we're referring to when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Humanity fell. We're going to see that in Genesis chapter 3. And so we talk about that the fall. We go, but, but before the fall, there was work. God says, I want you to work. I want you to keep the land. Which tells us is that part of, part of God's good creation is that we work. It's actually only after the fall that work becomes, well, I guess work. <laughs> it becomes work. Work becomes, I think John said, work becomes toil. Now we've got to work the land. There'll be this, this sense of that there's never enough. But, but part of God's good creation is that we would work. 
That's why when I think about heaven, people think about heaven as this, reti- this like place of eternal retirement where we do nothing and eat ice cream sundaes all the time. And I go, I don't, I don't see that. What I see is I think that there is this return to an Eden-like state and relationship with one another and with God. But even there, we see work. There are things we're going to be doing. We'll have jobs. We're not going to just sit around and maybe just sing, see, just, just sing Kumbaya. I kind of joke, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a preacher. And, uh, <laughs> and part of what I repeat is, is return to God, but everyone's already returned to God. So I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll just clean the toilets or something and I'll be, I'm, I'm fine with that. We have work and we see these two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there and, and the tree of life. And God says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that tree. And then the day that you eat of that tree is the day you'll surely you will die. But eat freely of any of the other trees. And by the way, of any of the other trees, I would assume, since he said eat freely of all the other trees, that included in that is the tree of life. It's only one tree. It's only one rule. One commandment. One thou shalt not. And that is to eat of that tree. It's interesting because we often think that God is a restricting God. That God's a control freak. That God just wants us to do his will because, because he's God and we're not. But I go, but this does not show us a picture of a restricting God. This shows us of a God who's invited us into freedom. Eat freely of any of the trees. I think often what we think that God has said, if we were writing the Bible, which we're not, but often what we think God has said is, you can't eat of any of the trees, except for I've given you one tree in which you can eat from. And it's a plum tree. I don't like plums. Too bad. I don't care if you like plums. That's your tree. That's what you eat. Restricting God. But that's not what the God that we see in Genesis chapter 2. What does he say? He says, I want you to eat freely of any of the trees. There's only one tree that you can't eat of. And here's the problem. As far as we know, the tree is beautiful. The, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is beautiful and it is good for food. We're going to see Eve say this in Genesis chapter 3. She saw that it was good for food. But we found out in Genesis chapter 2, well, we just already found out. He said that when he created all the trees, the, the verse I just, I just read earlier is that he, when he created all the trees, they were beautiful, what it says, they were pleasant to the sight and good for food. So the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That means that the knowledge, the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was pleasant to look at and was good for food. And what's crazier than that is that it was a part of God's good creation. It wasn't like God created Eden, probably trees blooming. It's like, and then there was this one ugly tree with bitter fruit. And God's like, how did that get in here? And he didn't, he didn't know. But he's like, well, it's already here. And so, well, we're going to leave it be now. When God steps back in day seven and looks at all of creation and all the beautiful goodness he sees what? The knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And he says, it is good. It is good. In fact, on the very last day, he says, it is very good. 
So this raises some major questions. People ask me, why would God put that tree there? And then what was it about that tree that gave them the knowledge of good and evil? Was it like the special fruit that had some sort of powers that when they ate it, something happened inside of them internally because of the fruit, acted with the brain, and then it was like, boom, eyes were opened. But the, really, the first question is, why, why would God even do that? And that's a good question, I think. Why would God even place that? It's like going back to the nursery analogy. It's like, so I'm going to put all these wonderful toys in here, child. But I am going to also put a knife set. And I'm going to tell you right now, they're very sharp. You should not hold them. But I'm going to put them there for you just so that you don't play with them. And doesn't God know about us? Doesn't God know that if he says, you can, you can touch all of this, but you just can't touch this one thing, we go, well, that's the one thing I want to touch now. It happens to us when we're children, and we don't really ever grow out of it. And what it does is it rises. Like, you can go through any of these doors. You just can go through any of these doors. You just can't go through this door. And you go, well, all of a sudden, I don't care about those other doors. I want to know what's behind that door. And so why would, God, why would God put the tree in the garden? There's a lot that I don't know. That should not shock you. There's a lot of answers that I don't have that should not shock you. And so I don't have all the answers of why God would put the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. But there are a couple of things that I know. I think one is that one that we are created in the likeness of God. And to be created in the likeness of God means that we are given moral choices. And with those moral choices are going to come responsibility and consequences. And so there is something about creating us in the likeness that, that at some level God had required, sorry, God used the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the creation of the likeness of us. Sorry, of him. But the other thing that I think is probably more important is that God is a relational God. And God knows that relationships are most healthy when we can choose out of the relationship. In other words, what was about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, kind of answering the second question, was there something about it? I go, I don't know if there was something about it other than it was a choice other than God. It was a choice other than God. Because God says, here's the one of life. You can do all of this, there's, but there's just one thing that I don't want you to do. I don't want you to do this. This is the one thing that you can do to, to throw off this relationship. The one thing that you can do to, to opt out of this relationship. And as long as you don't do that one thing, then, then you're in. We're in but, but healthy relationships always have a way for it to not be a relationship. Healthy relationships want to know that you choose to be in relationship with one another. You don't believe me? Um, Valentine's Day is a few months away. I dare you. I dare you to write this in your card. Dear Valentine, I love you a lot. Dot, dot, dot. I have no other options. <laughs> <laughs> I love you a lot, dot, dot, dot. I have no other options. But I love you a lot. 
that is not going to go over well. Not what your Valentine wants to hear. Not what your friend wants to hear. What does your Valentine want to hear? I choose you. 20th year anniversary, I choose you. I've chose you 20 years ago. I have chosen you every day since. And today on our 20th anniversary, I choose you again. (gasps) Now that's a card. And so I think at some level we have to be able to, to in a sense, that, that opt out. And I think that this relational Yahweh Elohim God knew for the, if the relationship was going to be authentic and intimate, we had to be able to choose out of it. And so God gave one way to choose out of it. And the eating of the fruit, as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, spoiler alert, Genesis chapter 3, they eat of the fruit. The eating of the fruit didn't any, it wasn't something that was special about that fruit, I don't think at least. That then it did something chemically with their brain and all of a sudden their eyes were open. What I think it was, was the eating of that fruit was a throwing off of the relationship and saying, I want to be my own moral authority. I want to have my own moral autonomy. Which makes sense then when he says later on, they have become just like us. Now, now they, are, they, are, they are morally autonomous, and that's not a good thing, is what we're going to see. But this eating of the fruit, the, the, the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, was this, I want to be my own boss. And I go, isn't that the way that we are right now? You'll hear the words like, well, only you know what's best for you. Oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? No, false. You got to do what you think is right false. I should do what I think is wrong? No, 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 no. God knows what's best for you, and he knows what's right. And what we want to do is to throw him off, to become morally autonomous. We get to decide what is right and what is wrong. I I even think like our question of why God would put the, the, uh, the tree in the garden in the first place is a question of moral autonomy. I think, God, why would you do that? That doesn't seem good. That seems like you set them up for failure. And really even in asking of the question, by the way, I asked the question too. In fact, I even posed it here. But even in the asking of the question, at some level what we're saying, if I was a good, wise God, and I knew that if I did that, then they would fall, then I would not have done that. As if we are more fair and more just and more loving and more gracious and more wise than God himself. And so we want to be our own our own boss, we want moral autonomy that says that, God, we know better than you. And God says, false, you don't. I've always known better than you, and I always will know better than you. Why? Because I created you in my likeness. Then he says this weird thing, if you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. And some people think, now this is really unfair of God because what he's done is he's put this tree in here knowing that they're going to eat of it 
And then when they do eat of it, he says, and now, now, now you're dead. But notice what it does not say. It does not say, in the day that you eat of it, I will kill you. Which is maybe what you may say as a parent. Like, hey, you touched that, you were dead. Like, you touched, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. You touch, so help me. If you touch this while I'm gone, I will, you're dead. Which is what we think. That's a threat. That's punishment, right? That's not what he says. He says, in the day that you eat of this, you will die. In other words, eating of the fruit, the natural, I think the natural consequence of the eating of the fruit will result in death. I think in a very similar way is if, if, if uh, you came across somebody who was, was smoking and then you said to them, hey, you keep smoking and you're going to die. And they may say something like, well, you know, we're all, all going to die someday anyways and dust to dust we return. And what you would understand is that, that if that interaction happened, you would understand what most likely you understand. What the person is saying is that if you continue to smoke, it's going to hurt your heart it's going to hurt your lungs, and, and there may be a lung cancer or a heart disease that's going to take your life. And so you shouldn't smoke. And so when the person says, hey, if you continue to smoke, you're going to die, that's the, how we understand that. We would not most likely understand it of like, if you continue to smoke, I will kill you. Now that's a whole different, like, how dare you come in here and, and threaten my life over smoking? It's a natural consequence. And so when God says, in the day that you eat of that, it's not the punishment of like, and I will kill you. I will smite you. It's a, it's a natural consequence to going away from God. And by the way, that's always been true and always will be true. You see, Jesus says things that are very similar. I've come that you may have life. He said, John 10, 10, he says, Satan has come to kill Right? Kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it, as he says, abundantly. After Jesus says that I'm going to prepare a place for you, you know what else he says? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. First John, it records it is that those who have the Son have life, and those who do not have the Son do not have life. In other words, these two trees, the life, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one is to pursue life and the other is to pursue death. And every time we pursue something other than God, we are pursuing death. Now here's the thing. We often don't think about sin as I'm pursuing death. In fact, actually, a lot of times when we, we, we pursue sin, sometimes we think, well, hopefully I'll get away with it. Hopefully nobody will notice. I only always think like that. Like we, if I choose to lie, then I, I am pursuing death. But to be a teller of truth, then I'm pursuing life. This is why Jesus, is why he doesn't say that he is the way to the life or even the access to the life, but he says that he is the life. And that's what First John says. He says, I've come to give it to you. And the life is, is him. And so what we see in Genesis is like, oh, that story way long ago, way back, that's super irrelevant now. You go, no, it's super relevant. 
Why? Because we're given the same choice today. God says, I want you to come to me and eat freely from the tree of life. The fruit that's been offered to us uh, through Jesus. And we'll find out in a couple weeks, actually, that the tree of life makes a reappearance. And so what Jesus is offering you is, is life. And to reject that and to go with your own moral autonomy and authority is to pursue death. Now, you may not believe that what I say is true. You say, I don't think that's true. I think it's true. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it. But I will tell you this. I do believe it's the clear message of the Bible from Genesis into Revelation. And so really when we follow Jesus, it's not about like we were bad people and then we became good people and so God was angry with us, now he's happy with us because now we do good things. But the story of Jesus on the cross is that he faced the death that we were to face so that we may live the life that we are to live and to pursue him is to pursue life. That's what we saw last week, that our, that our, that our old selves are dead and our true life, our true self is hidden within Christ. And so the, the, the choice that that faced Adam and faced Eve has faced every human being ever since and ever will to come. Is will we choose the path of life that is one that pursues God or will we choose the path of death, the one in which we are our own boss and our own moral authority? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the life. We thank you that you have not just left us in a place of fallen state. We thank you that, that you have, in a weird way, we thank you that you have given us in a good way, a good, healthy way, you've given us a way to, to not be in relationship with you. Not because, we don't wa- because you don't want us, but because you know that authentic, intimate relationships are ones that involve choosing in a two. So Spirit, I pray that you'd be moving here and moving in us. That God, that your, your breath, your spirit would be moving in us to move us away from death and into life. Away from the place where we are our boss, we are our king, we are the God, to the place where Jesus, you are the God, you are the king. You are what is true, and you are our life. We love you. We pray for these things in your name.